grandmother is an artist. I'm not going to suddenly stop doing that because I have children. So you never felt that your mother exploited you or used you? I took the leap of faith into motherhood. I make a better aunt than I would a mother, I think. My mother, she had to make it like that. She's the most difficult job on the planet. She's the mother. That sound like a mother already devastated by the death of one son. She's going to kill me. So knowing how to prepare for Mother Nature's Surprise, theory can actually save you. Barack Obama hated his mother. Mama, I love you, and we're going to celebrate all hour with a cake. I'm sitting in a parking lot in upstate New York with my older sister Tara. Yeah, sure. The car is the only quiet place I can record her. She has three kids and a German Shepherd. Inside the car, there are ground up Cheerios in the seat, tiny socks, and sticky toys. The car doors automatically lock, but her life wasn't always this way. So I went to the doctor. It was a freezing cold December morning. And the medical tech listened to the heartbeat of the baby. And I couldn't hear a heartbeat, but for some reason it didn't really occur to me that that was a problem. I can't explain why. So then she sent the doctor in. And so she did an ultrasound and she said, I'm so sorry, I don't see anything. And Reed was with me, my son, and he was holding a little engine in his hand, a little Thomas the Tank engine. And I remember sort of the world coming to an end. It was so deeply shocking and so difficult to imagine. My sister was seven months pregnant when she lost the baby. In medical terms, that's a stillbirth because she was over five months. It's a subject that no one knows how to talk about. Or maybe it's something that I didn't know how to talk about. I began the interview by trying to explain why I had trouble being there for her. You've talked to me about how, you know, the importance of people not sort of... You can hear how nervous I am. Shutting down when you've lost I'm trying to talk about how I reacted. The mic noise, the number of times I use the word like... You know, I feel like, for me, like your, your own sister, like it was really hard for me to like. Talking about this is hard. Even though she's my sister, maybe because she's my sister, it's hard to explain why I could not be there. You know. And then I lose my nerve. So I ask her about how other people reacted. I asked her if she felt isolated. I do think that people tried really hard to get to me. It's just that you're in this box ball by yourself, you know? And it isn't their fault. People try really hard to be there. It's just really scary. And so I don't want to throw people under the bus, you know, because they tried. Yeah. Like, it's much more complicated. I don't think you're going to be throwing anybody under the bus. Let's see. I think that after after the loss, I definitely felt in a crowd of women like a cautionary tale. You know, when you're 35, a lot of people are pregnant around you. So um, 
you know, your community of women tends to be a community that's very, very child-centered and very, very child-focused. So if you have a loss and then you go to birthday parties and playgrounds and pickups at preschools, you know, there was a woman at preschool who she, she asked to hug me and I, she was somebody who, she's a really nice person. And yet we always had this weird interaction around my loss because she tried really hard to say kind things to me and I kept on accidentally rebuffing her and I I totally didn't mean to like um she asked to hug me I let her hug me but it was uncomfortable when I was pregnant again she realized that I was and she said I'm so happy for you and I think I said no comment because I really didn't want to acknowledge the pregnancy because I was afraid to acknowledge the pregnancy I called her back later because I I meant it as a joke, but I see that it wasn't funny. I see that it was just really rude and I didn't mean to be rude, but I was just really shut down. I called her later and she was like, nope, no comments, cool. And then she pretty much hung up on me. And then um, like when I was almost going to have David, she came up to me and said, so have you decorated the nursery? And again, she was trying to make conversation, but I was like, no. So (laughs) never spoke to me. I didn't mean to shut her out and she could have been a little bit less angry at me when I wasn't instantly able to connect with her. But, you know, there are all sorts of misunderstandings that occur around it. I can't remember much about that time. I think I called. I went to the funeral and it was cold. I tried to be there for her, but I didn't know how to do that. It's it's a hard thing. I think that a mistake that, that bereaved people sometimes make is sort of wishing that people understood or expecting that people understood. And with every fiber of our being, actually, we know we don't want them to understand. I didn't understand. To me, it seemed like a problem with no solution. And it weirded me out. Maybe if I had known that understanding wasn't required, it would have been easier to be there. About six years after she lost the baby, my sister created a website called Reconceiving Loss for people who had gone through a similar experience. You you don't judge anybody and you're not looking for understanding. And I, I believe you, but I also feel like there must have been a, a need for you to create this website, for you to like, there must have been an inciting incident where you're like, Actually, this is the bullshit. Beach. It wasn't, no, because this is bullshit makes it sound like I was angry, and I wasn't. Everybody was dying for me to be angry. I wasn't angry. I wasn't angry at all. Like, not even for a second was I angry. Mm-hmm. I was really sad. But people kept on telling me over and over again how it was okay to be angry, and it was okay to feel like that nobody understood me. And it was all these, and I was like, I, I just stopped telling people I wasn't angry, but at no point, not for one second was I angry. I was not angry at God. I was not angry at friends. I was not angry at family. I was not angry at anyone. I was just sad. That's all. I was not angry. Never. Not even for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, I was angry at their insistence that I be angry. <laughs> insistence on it. They just could not understand that I wasn't. And it really, that was the kind of thing where I was like, all right, well then I'm going to just 
hole up and be by myself because that was them putting their own stuff on me. Like, if that's how they thought that they would react, first of all, they hadn't been through what I had been through, so they couldn't possibly know, but then they wanted me to be angry, and so at a certain point, instead of rebuffing it, I just decided to comply, and I often pretended to be very angry. But then that was annoying, because then I had to, then I sort of cast myself as, like, people would think, oh, she's very angry. It's like, but I'm not. Shut up. Just stop. So then I just kind of, maybe, you know, that's what drove me into making the site, is, like, for all the people that everybody wants to feel a certain way, that often have to do with their own experience of something, like, here's where you, maybe, can, if you want, my humble effort to help you figure out how you feel about it. Was I hopeful? Did I give her the support she needed? I remember when she told me she was going to start her website. We were driving over a bridge, and I thought, it's been six years, you're not over that yet? Yes. This is a terrible reaction. And no, I did not say this out loud. I think I thought giving her support meant helping her move past her grief. And I was confused to realize that this isn't the type of thing people get over. I didn't realize how badly she was affected by the loss until she started writing about it publicly on her website. The fact that people try to understand or try to be there for you without understanding. I have one friend who came up to me and she said, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say to you and I don't know how to be with you, but I'll tell you what, I'm just going to keep on showing up. And that was just about the greatest thing that anybody ever said to me because she did. She's always shown up and she's to this day, one of my best friends. So she is an example of somebody that really just stuck it. I don't know if I stuck it. I don't know if I was even helpful. I kind of wanted to ask her, but uh, instead I say... you feel like David did a good job in being there for you? David is my older brother. They got to be teenagers together while I was learning to read. My brother? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as much as anybody could, could, could be. Nobody could really be there for me, Miranda, because I was there by myself, and that was okay. That's the point. Like, we look for people to, to be there and support us, and they are as best they can. And so as long as your expectations of them aren't insane, then they will be there for you because they love you. Like, the people that love me were there for me whether or not they thought they were. Mm -hmm. You were there for me. He was there for me because you guys love me, you know? Gavin was there for me. I was there for Gavin. Gavin is my husband because we love each other. Like, that's what it comes down to. It's not understanding. It's love. It's like love can be frustrating and it can be all sorts of things. But I am touched by the people that just showed up or called or cried or did the best they could to, you know, just not leave. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, that, that's the, that's the minimum standard for care. And it's a really hard one to meet sometimes. Yeah. Like, that's the point. It's almost two o'clock 
She has to pick up her kids from school. The interview is over. We turn to everyday subjects. Starbucks, my new boyfriend, our parents' dogs. I'm just gonna run into Starbucks and use the bathroom. Yeah. It's hard for me to know what to say sometimes. But this banal conversation makes me so happy and feel so loved that I understand what she means about the importance of just being there. Thank you for letting me interview you. Sure. Anytime. I have to figure out if I can start this car. Yes. Sounds good. The cheapest solar light in the world. so grateful for this amazing uh, piece that was essentially gifted to us by Miranda Schaefer. She is a freelance journalist and producer based in New York City. I mean, for me, like what, what I found really um, sort of interesting and important about this story is just that, like, I remember when I was a kid, there was one sort of family friend, and I remember my mom saying in a very hushed tone, she had a miscarriage. Um, and it was sort of like, oh, this is very tragic, but also it was sort of like, mm, there's something uh, like a little cautionary about her, like what Miranda's sister was saying, that she was like a cautionary tale. There was maybe something a little bit wrong with her. And and then I remember getting to the age where my friends were starting to have babies and miscarriages, and we were talking about it, but we didn't really know what to say to each other about it. Yeah. I mean, I don't have children. I've never been pregnant. I didn't know what to say other than to sort of be awkward and listen and well-intentioned. Like, you know, you hear the woman in, in the story or you hear about the woman in Miranda's story who's just, you know, trying so hard to be there and, and just being so totally, totally off the mark. Yeah, yeah. So, Amy, you uh, worked with Miranda on this piece so she actually came to us and said, um, you know, my sister experienced this loss and I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't even know really how significant it was to her until I started reading what she was writing about it like six years after the loss on parenting blogs and stuff. And I think that's something that a lot of women who experience a pregnancy loss face, right? It's just people who haven't gone through it not understanding what uh, what really took place. And of course they can't understand what took place because every woman's pregnancy loss is different. Every woman feels a different way about her pregnancy and every woman who experiences a pregnancy loss feels a different way about her pregnancy loss. Every single pregnancy and every single loss is unique because the woman carrying it is unique. So I'm going to get a little heady here, but I, I, I was looking up recently um, some philosopher's thoughts on the beginning of, of life, the beginning of human personhood. This is a freighted, freighted topic. Go on. <laughs> uh, 
was just looking up like Hippocrates and the Pythagoreans said way back when that fertilization was the beginning of human life and that the human soul was created at that time. And you have some medieval Christian theologians that say um, ensoulment happens when the infant takes his first breath of air. Are you noticing anything missing from any of these philosophers or, or early religious ideas? Anything it's, at all? It seems really focused on the the fetus or, you know, a- embryo, egg, whatever sort of stage. And th- there's not a lot of mention of the person who actually created the life. Thank you. I couldn't <laughs> help but notice that either. I was thinking, okay, so none of these philosophers and and this is that was a very brief overview but if you dig even further i think you'll find very few references to the person who is growing this separate entity all of these philosophers are men right their stake is sort of in making sure mm-hmm. that they get birthed and <laughs> not really thinking about the the needs of the person who does the birthing, right? Yeah, they can't even conceive of being in the role of the woman carrying the fetus because they were men. Like, that wasn't an option for them. So the only person, the only entity, the only being that they could identify with would be the fetus and the and the infant, right? So so it makes sense for them to be protective of, of that entity. So that, so that story from Miranda was um, looked at the really tricky emotional aspects of stillbirth. But Amy, didn't you cover... A court case that centered on a stillbirth that had some really tricky legal issues? I did, and it was really tricky. Essentially, what happened was there was a woman in northern Indiana who experienced a stillbirth at her house, and long story short, she was arrested and charged with child neglect resulting in the death of a dependent and feticide. Jurors in the Pervy Patel child neglect case reached a unanimous verdict. Guilty on felony counts of child neglect and feticide. Patel was convicted of using abortion drugs she got without a prescription over the internet to terminate a secret pregnancy caused by a married man. Pervy Patel sat at the defense table and quietly cried as a doctor testified about pronouncing There's that a lot of details in this story, so I would encourage you to Google the story of Pervy Patel from Granger, Indiana, and we will have a link on our website that's to the story that I originally produced for PRI's The World so that you can get a better idea of, of what went on there. But essentially, she was charged with uh, child neglect resulting in the death of a dependent when she says what she experienced was a stillbirth and not a live birth. Wait, wait, so can I just ask, like, if her fetus had been, like, 10 weeks younger, then it would have been a miscarriage and there would have been no question of, like, harming a child? That's a good question, and that was a really sticky point in the in the whole case is... How do you nail down exactly what the gestational age of the fetus was? She never got any medical care. And so the only way that pathologists were able to make a stab at the gestational age of this fetus was to look at physical and developmental structures on the fetus. But the problem is those things vary from fetus to fetus, and you can't really determine without a doubt exactly that the fetus was, let's say, 24 weeks. There were guesses between 
22 weeks um, up to 28 weeks. But even anytime below 28 weeks, the World Health Organization calls extremely preterm. And their chances for survival on their own without medical intervention, being born that early, are very, very, very slim. So the child neglect charge really relied on the idea that the fetus was born alive and took a breath. But pathologists could never come to consensus that that was the case or that the fetus was even far enough along to even be able to live outside of her womb at all. Like, was it, was it, it's, I mean, it sounds like it was really hard to sort of nail down almost anything in this case. Was it clearly, if she didn't seek uh, medical care while she was pregnant, did she want to be pregnant? Was this a planned um, pregnancy? So it came out during her case that this was not a planned pregnancy. And police had taken her cell phone and looked through all of her text messages. And she she was an avid text messenger. And she text messaged her friend about pretty much everything that was going on. And she, she told her friend via text message that she bought abortion drugs online from Hong Kong, from an online pharmacy based in Hong Kong. And in her text messages, she describes taking the pills. So that information from the text messages about the abortion pills is what her later charge of feticide was based on. Prosecutors said that... Okay, wait, 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 wait. They charged her with a crime because of a text message? That's right. And What? The what? use. How did they even know? Like somebody else could have taken that phone. I'm sorry. I'm going to calm down. But seriously. Well, that's that's a good question. They they had um, toxicologists look for this abortion drug in her system and also in in the body of her fetus, and nothing like that was found. There was no evidence that she actually had ordered the drugs or received them. So essentially, yes, this charge which she she got seven years in prison for. Um, was based on this communication with her friend via text message. So she got she got seven years for basically acknowledging that she didn't want to be pregnant. Can I say that? I mean, that's what that that's all that text message really reveals is that she didn't want to be pregnant. Apparently, that's a crime. Well, you make a good point. I mean, that there are so many different feelings surrounding pregnancy and pregnancy loss, and that's what we're talking about today. So. So yeah. it's a good point yeah. to bring up. Um, and you're not the only one to do it. The National Advocates for Pregnant Women say that this case sets precedent in the whole country for the use of a feticide law in this way. They say that it's the first conviction and sentence for feticide because a woman sought to terminate her own pregnancy. At some point, are the medical issues and the legal issues just kind of incompatible? Like, whereas medicine would acknowledge a gray area about life the the lot does not it's a good point you make i mean when you see women day in and day out giving birth and all the variety of outcomes that happen with pregnancy in a medical setting you you know that that you do realize there's gray area some really extremely preterm babies do live and they're fine some live and they have developmental problems or physical problems for the rest of their lives and some do not live at all and it it's hard to know which ones will and which ones won't and that's why most NICU doctors or neonatologists if a if a baby's born at around like 24 weeks full term being 40 weeks gestation oh wow that doctor will often tell the parents do you want me to make medical interventions to try to save the life 
of your baby or not. The decision is left up to the parents at that point. And that's for a baby who's born in the hospital. They get that option. Since Purvi Patel delivered at home, she didn't have that option. Nobody was a witness to what happened during her delivery. All that the prosecutors and pathologists had to go on was the physical remains of her delivery and her story. And as a result, she's serving 20 years in prison. She's in prison for 20 years. I mean, this, I mean, I can't help but say this. I know this is probably really, really simplistic, but it seems like her case is somewhat similar to Miranda's sister's case. And yet she's in prison for 20 years and Miranda's sister, you know, her family felt so bad for her and people wanted to hug her and she's blogging on Huffington Post. I mean, how do you reconcile those two totally different outcomes from a situation that seems not dissimilar? It's tricky talking about both of these pregnancy losses at the same time, Tara's and Purvi Patel's, but I think the biggest difference between what happened between them was how Purvi Patel appeared to feel about her pregnancy. That's the biggest difference. So the text messages to her friend, um, the fact that she came into the hospital and didn't bring the fetus with her, and, and it was somehow not communicated to the to the medical providers that she had experienced more of a delivery than what they would call a miscarriage, which is just a pregnancy loss that's less than 20 weeks. These two things really made it look like, you know, she wasn't enthusiastic about her pregnancy or becoming a mother. And that, I think that's that's probably the biggest difference between the two of them. But does that, okay, you can't like, so, huh, you can't put people in jail for how they feel. Yes, I guess you can. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think we want what what we're hoping to do is recognize Tara's loss and recognize her difficulty and the pain that she felt, and also recognize that there there's just such variety in the way that people feel about their pregnancies and about their pregnancy losses. Yeah, this has always been something we've been trying to do with mother to try to bring more complexity into stories about mothers, mothering. There isn't a lot of it out there. Um, I mean, that's why we started this podcast. But there is another project created by Reproductive Health Reality Check, and it's called Pregnant, Parenting, and Pro-Choice. Yeah, it's a simple concept. It's just a a simple Tumblr page, but it's gotten a lot of um, attention, and people are, are participating widely. It's got a lot of stories up there, a lot of different stories from a lot of different women. We talked to the editor-in-chief of Reproductive Health Reality Check, Jody Jacobson. There are some of the most beautiful photos, and, and literally some of them made me cry. And the, be- the beauty, the simplicity, the honesty, the integrity, everything about those photos is beautiful. You know, many of us who work in this field know one in three women have abortions. The majority of women who have abortions are already mothers. I have had an abortion. I have no shame about it. Um, I am now a mother by choice. And um, it came to me that, you know, this constant shaming of women and, and people who are pregnant, who need to terminate a pregnancy for whatever their own reasons, 
and this constant shaming of mothers was just unacceptable. And, and Jody and her colleagues at uh, Reproductive Health Reality Check put us in touch with one of the women who contributed a story. So this is Veronica Ariola. First, I asked her to just read her story, uh, which she posted on the Tumblr. It's really short. Um, uh, being pregnant is one of the scariest and bravest things I have ever done. Popular media would like us to think being pregnant is magical, and for the most part it is, but so much can go wrong. I remember making my birth plan and realizing that some decisions might have to be made by my husband. I had gestational diabetes and had to follow a strict diet. So much was not magical. That reinforced my belief that no one should ever be forced to carry a pregnancy to term because magic can't be forced. I asked her to just sort of tell me what attracted her to the project, why she thought it was important to share her story. I served with our Chicago Abortion Fund for five, almost six years, and really got to hear the stories of the women who would call that hotline asking for help. Um, and most of those women were calling because uh, essentially they had social and economic reasons why they did not feel they could carry their pregnancy to term. In this country, we really idolize motherhood um, and we idolize the sacrifice of that mothers are supposed to make. This kind of prime, you know, removing yourself as the primary person in your life and putting your children, elevating your children above yourself. Um, and then when we talk about abortion, it's often framed as something that's selfish. Women make these educated, informed decisions that having a another child at that moment um, would be detrimental to their life and maybe the life of their other children. So if we were to, as a whole country, as society, acknowledge the fact that mothers have abortions, we would have to face the harsh reality of poverty, homelessness, low-wage work, the lack of childcare in this country. Um, in order to reconcile the idea that women who have been pregnant and given birth very happily would choose to end a pregnancy. That's Pregnant Parenting and Pro-Choice. You can contribute a story by going to pregnantparentingprochoice.tumblr.com. We'll have the link on our website. And just to remind you, our website is motherapodcast.com all spelled out. You can listen to our show there, or you can subscribe on iTunes. You can listen on Stitcher, or you can check us out on SoundCloud. And you can always email us at motherapodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at motherapodcast, all one word, all lowercase. We're very far away from each other, and I miss you. I know. I miss you, too. I don't like this. When can I come over for coffee? Anytime. Anytime you want. It's cool. It's cool to be back in the Midwest. Like, I have a yard and a fence, and my dog can run around, and uh, my kid loves to play in the dirt, and that's just how we do here, and, and it feels great. But I do miss you. I miss New York. 
um, and you're going to have um, a podcasting shed. Is that right? Oh, yeah. So anybody who's out, out there who's ever read A Room of One's Own, I'm building it in my backyard, and I'm so A shed. Cool. A shed of one's own. It's a shed of one's own, and I'm going to finish it out and put a little studio back there and just live my dream. Well, I think... Live the dream. I think Virginia Woolf would totally approve. I do, too. Before we go, we should thank a few people. Rachel Peroni, thank you so much for helping us set up some interviews to talk about the Pregnant Parenting and Pro-Choice Project. Thank you to Miranda Schaefer for producing that amazing piece that we heard in, at the beginning of the show. It was awesome. Thank you to Miranda's sister, Tara, Yeah, for sharing your story. That was really a gift, and we appreciate it. So I guess that's it for another episode of Mother, a podcast. This is Ann Noisani. We cannot sign out like that. We can't. I know. Oh, God. It's All right. Like, Do you have a Yo Mama joke? Yo Mama. Mamas. I don't know any. Okay, wait. No, let's give a preview of what's happening next time. Next month, we're going to be hearing a story about a woman who, in many ways, was a mother to her pet, to her dog. And she's going to talk about the complexities of parenting an animal. It's the doggy mommy episode of Mother. Yeah, yeah. It's what you've been waiting for. This story is coming from another guest producer named Caitlin Pierce. And we're we're really excited to work with her. Yep. She did a great job for us. So uh, tune in. All right, woman. I'm going to let you go do your real job. (laughs) And I'll go do my real job. All right. I miss you. I miss you. Until the next time. I'm going to push stop. All right. Bye. Yeah. All right. I'm pushing stop too.